I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we're talking about Edge of Tomorrow. Some of you might know it as Live, Die, Repeat. We'll talk about that. <laughs> the 2014 <laughs> film directed by Doug Lyman, screenplay by Christopher McCorry, Jez Butterworth, and John Henry Butterworth, based on All You Need is Killed by Hiroshi Sakurazaka. I'm joined today by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello again. And Alex Cayetos. Hi. Before we dive into Edge of Tomorrow, Spotify question, because this is something that I think we all need to think about, is what is your favorite Emily Blunt performance? Because there are so many. How do you choose? I want to know what people say. And they are all so good. They are all so good. I don't, I don't want to choose. <laughs> yeah. It's, we like to make our questions hard. So Edge of Tomorrow, Emily Blunt is great. It's a really fun action time loop movie. I remember when it came out. Again, if you lived in LA, there were those posters everywhere mm -hmm. that had live, die, repeat all over it. And then like Edge of Tomorrow at the bottom. And it's kind of this famous marketing disaster that happened. <laughs> Choice. <laughs> <laughs> People were confused about what the actual title of the movie was. And then they leaned into it and changed the title for the Blu-ray release. It's, it was a mess. But I remember going to the theater. I think friends were in town. I didn't really know anything about the movie. I hadn't watched the trailer. Sat down to kind of ready to be disappointed in, you know, another like random action movie and was had so much fun. Mm -hmm. It's just such a fun movie. I feel like especially the first 20, 30 minutes do such a great job of hooking you. There's storming the beach. We can talk about that. Bill Paxton is there. He just <laughs> <laughs> has the thickest accent. <laughs> I feel like the first 20 minutes is like a detour into James Cameron land. It with totally like, is. It's it's James right. Cameron army people. It's, it's yeah. very aliens. <laughs> yeah, the, the, right. the freaking like power armor suits. You exactly. Know. Yeah. I, I also love that Bill Paxton is playing like the anti-Hudson in this movie. Uh -huh. like, he is the guy who would like kick Hudson out, basically. Exactly. It is such a just a great, fun action movie. Revisiting it, I feel like I had a lot more problems with it than I remembered. I kind of remembered it and had kind of put it on this pedestal of like, oh, one of the greatest action movies that's come out in the last 10 years. A lot of it is. I think a lot of the sequences are, and maybe even just the first half of the movie, I think is really great. But I think there are then problems that emerge as the story goes on. But it's also a time loop movie. So we've talked about Groundhog Day. It's interesting how this film borrows some of those structural things from the time loop genre or whatever we <laughs> want to call it. Mm -hmm. And kind of like, you know, Palm Springs that came out recently. It's always fun to see how people take that thing mm -hmm. and mess with it. And I thought both the setting and then some of the ways they play with even perspective and all this stuff is was really, really interesting. Yeah, exactly. So this is actually before Happy Death Day. Mm. You know, my entire when I was like thinking about going to see this movie, you know, someone said to me, it's action Groundhog Day. And that was all they needed to say to me to get right. me really hooked and excited about it. <laughs> and you get the feeling that that's, you know, you could say that in a pitch meeting very easily. You get the feeling that the Happy Death Day creators were also like, it's horror Groundhog Day. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Palm Springs is kind of doing something like it's, you know, more this other comedy kind of, but like rom -com. it's right. Like exactly. More explicitly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's a rom-com, but that's actually using the time loop in the structure of the rom-com as opposed to Groundhog Day, where it's sort of like there's a time loop happening over here and a rom-com happening over here. Mm -hmm. And then they sort of come together at the end. But Palm Springs, I thought was cool that it was like we're actually using the time loop and like embedding it into the structure of this rom-com. 
when we were doing our Groundhog Day video, we were talking about what a strong premise it is. And I think that that's why this movie works is because the premise is so fascinating and cool. And the movie does a good job, like Groundhog Day does, of exploiting the premise. To me, it's not a surprise. It's really understandable that this movie could get made with a strong premise like that. You know, if you have like a singular sort of high concept thing, it's like, well, this guy has to, you know, he's storming the beach at Normandy, but he lives it every day and it's aliens. And you're like, oh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. And this was, of course, a famous spec that ended up on the blacklist. Well, it got optioned by Three Arts and then it ended up, they wrote it as a spec, which is interesting, after it was optioned. The book was optioned. And then they hired Dante Harper. He wrote it as a spec. And then the spec was like a $3 million spec sale. So this is the exact kind of thing that like a screenwriter dreams of. And if you have a really cool high concept premise and you can execute it, which we can talk a little bit more about the development of the script about this is certainly not Dante Harper's original script that sold for $3 million. <laughs> but if you can, you know, take a really great premise you're going to capture the audience's imagination. So you're going to sell some tickets. And, uh, you know, a studio can see and will jump at the chance to make their money on something that has a cool premise like this does. On the other hand, you know, I think what you're saying is absolutely right that a smart studio exec should see the potential in this. However, in, in the post-financial crash, you know, yeah. 2010s, it was still kind of a surprise to see what felt like a completely fresh, original, big blockbuster get Definitely. made you know, that wasn't a franchise movie yeah it was based off of some source material but it wasn't like a you know it wasn't a well-known harry potter style source material so that was what you know when i first saw it it was it was kind of like district nine where i went in to see this movie with pretty low expectations and just expected like okay they made something it's probably gonna be blah you know whatever and my, my my expectations have kind of slowly been going down for big blockbuster films of that mm -hmm. era and then for it to be so fresh and to have characters that i was really into and to have yeah the groundhog's day premise fully exploited where they really had fun with it and didn't just use it in a one-dimensional way but used it for character uh, twists and motivations. Mm -hmm. They used it for cool sci-fi elements that I'd never seen before in a, in a mm -hmm. film. I walked out of the theater being very pleasantly surprised and enthused by it. That's maybe why, you know, Michael mentioned it doesn't seem as perfect now as you remember it. And I think a lot of the perfection we felt back when we first saw it was almost just the wonderful surprise, surprise of yeah. it just being <laughs> a good movie at all you know like just, just being so well executed and so well done was a treat at that time mm -hmm. well there's a remarkable lightness to this too you like we're talking yes. about the surprise mm -hmm. and it ends up being a joy of watching groundhog day but the joy of watching Groundhog Day is seeing the torture kind of of Bill Murray's right. character in that mm. movie where, you know, you see him roll over and and I've got you, babe, is playing and he's like smashing the radio because he's so over it. And then, you know, it goes to those really, really dark places where he's trying to end his life because he's so tortured by being trapped in Punxsutawney for however long. That's not at all the journey of the character in this. The character starts off really scared and disempowered, afraid, like kind of, yeah, really helpless. And he doesn't want to be there. He starts off that way. But very quickly, he sees the power 
and the potential, the character's journey is much more, I don't know, like he becomes an action hero. He becomes Tom Cruise, Mm -hmm. I think, more quickly than we see Bill Murray's journey, you know, like in in Groundhog Day. Um, Phil is the name of the character in Groundhog Day. But there's a, a real lightness to both the character's journey and also just to the tone and the treatment of the material here. Well, and like Groundhog's Day, though, Groundhog, it's really, we did this. <laughs> sorry, Groundhog Day. It's like we're reliving the Groundhog Day podcast. Still doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> Groundhog Day, like in Groundhog Day, there is an implied almost horror when you mm-hmm. realize how many like human lifetimes has he been doing this. Right. When he's memorized the exact like patterns of how people are walking in a hallway, it, it starts to get actually kind of chilling if you step back and think about it too much. <laughs> of like the psychic toll that this would take on a brain <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to endure this. It's fun because it, it's the rare device where you can take this like PR marketing executive dude. You can take him believably from that all the way to actually Tom Cruise action hero because maybe he has actually lived many, many lifetimes at this point. And so I can believe that transformation because of the implied insane amount of time that he's been living this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually mentioned this on the Groundhog Day podcast, actually, but I talked about how I liked seeing Tom Cruise as a sort of bumbling, helpless person. Oh, yeah. Because it's so he's refreshing. Just, yeah. Right. It's just never the case. And and that is sort of his entire arc in this movie, really, is he he can't do any of this without Rita. But just the fact that he has that Tom Cruise confidence in that scene with Brendan Gleeson, you know, he's like, well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I decline. It sounds <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. But uh, and he's like, no, you're going to do this. And he's like, well, OK, but like, what if I didn't? Huh? You know, and then it's just <laughs> and, and it's really fun because then, as you were saying, Alex, then you you get to see him sort of like evolve from anti Tom Cruise into Tom Cruise, which is an interesting, interesting thing this movie does. Mm-hmm. It's almost the hardest sell of the movie in some ways is mm. to make us believe that it's not Tom Cruise. We're like, right. you're watching, you're like, wait, like Tom Cruise isn't an action star already? Like, right. it's kind of unsettling. But his commitment to it, I think, ultimately makes you buy in. He sells it. Yeah. And so kind of like layering his journey and kind of the structure of this movie on top of, you know, Groundhog Day, something I think you brought up, Trisha, in the Groundhog Day podcast and for the videos, you know, comedy needs jerks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise's character, uh, Cage, it is that, right? He's a different kind of jerk, but he's, you know, we see him as he's like a, a scaredy cat and he doesn't want to fight. It is kind of fun to see him freaking out about how like intense, you know, going into battle and all that fear. There's a little bit of that, like, you know, sadistic fun of seeing, again, Tom Cruise squirm, right? Yeah. yeah. You still have that. What is interesting is that Kind of the other big difference is this is a little bit of a a two-hander, right? Where like Emily Blunt's character, once she's there, she's like the partner on this journey for most of the movie in a way that I think Groundhog Day doesn't really have. Like Phil is kind of alone. Mm -hmm. He's trying to like make connections and there are different periods where he swaps out what random townie he's like partnered with in mm-hmm. his adventures. Sorry, I just realized they're both named Rita. Yeah, that also <laughs> happens in my brain. That's interesting. Wow, yeah. Andy McDowell's character and <laughs> Emily Blunt's characters. That has to be intentional, right? Like, so we have Phil and Rita versus Bill and Rita. Bill and Rita. <laughs> what? what? Okay. Yeah, that must be intentional. It is interesting, though, that like, as we talked about in the Groundhog Day video, you know, the midpoint of Groundhog Day is the stuff that you're talking about, Trisha, where it gets very dark and it's him kind of like dealing with this 
you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to take these extreme measures and throw myself off the clock tower and like drop mm-hmm. a toaster in my bathtub and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Hilarious. <laughs> and I feel like this movie kind of tries to do something like that. But I feel like the midpoint is a little bit where it starts to lose me at the midpoint is kind of where you know we've been with tom cruise as he's living this day over and over he's getting better and better and then they get past the beach and they get to you know where all the rvs are and then they find a little farmhouse and then it gets quiet and sort of for that day it's almost like we shift perspectives into rita's perspective Mm -hmm. and like once rita's perspective and I, i feel like it tries to go to depth there and kind of reach this kind of tap into his character's despair at you know this is as far as you go and like i don't know how to fix it but it doesn't feel like it has that same weight to me as as groundhog day and maybe it's not trying to but that's just an interesting comparison i think of of how both of those moments work in those films Mm. definitely what i do love about that moment though is the tricky pov switch me too where we as the audience don't realize that we're now in Rita's POV because we've been with Bill the entire time. Bill, ugh, I mean Tom Cruise. <laughs> they refer to him as Cage more often in the movie. Yeah, yeah I, think. I don't think I ever knew his first name was Bill. He's 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 Jack or Ethan. Maybe I'll go. Right. Cage is fine. <laughs> but it's like we've been with him the entire time, and then suddenly there's that moment where she realizes, and we as the audience realize, like how many times we've been here before. And it's just a really clever way to do that filmmakery cheaty thing where it's like we didn't show you anything false, we just didn't show you something. You know, it's the which they haven't been showing us a lot of things. You know, we've, mm-hmm. we've skipped right. over how who knows how many days. So it's, it's fair. I think it's a fair trick to pull on us. Yeah. Right. The, the thing it reminds me of, uh, Silence of the Lambs does this, and I think Wind River does this, where it's character A going up to a front door and then character B answering the door. But then when the door is answered, you realize there are two different scenes. So character A is over on this side of town and character mm-hmm. B is answering the door, uh, which which happens with James Gum and Clarice at the end of Silence of the Lambs. Uh, and it's just it's a, it's just one of those things where it's like, OK, you're cheating, but also like, yeah, you, you just used my expectation of how film language works to make me think a thing. That's fair game. Yeah, I love the midpoint here, Michael. Me too. This movie doesn't have an emotional core without it. I agree that the second half from that point on is bumpier and even getting to the midpoint is a little bumpy but the actual choice of what the midpoint itself is doing i think is really effective because as the movie starts to skip ahead more and more quickly in time we spend so much time on that damn beach and the movie makes so much out of it which i guess that's the bulk of the novel and my understanding is that almost all of the original script was also focused on like storming the beach and everything. This was, you know, reworked later in the script development process to like take more advantage of Tom Cruise, put him in a helicopter, he could fly it (laughs) and all this other stuff. That's fine. And I like some of the set pieces in the second half that aren't on the beach because I do think you get into a slog when we're just on this beach and there's just sand and there's mimics everywhere. The crew from Aliens, J-Squad, who are they? J-Squad sounds right. James Cameron Squad. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) J-Crew, I think you got it right. Are running around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 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 J-Team. Anyway, shifting the characters off of the beach as we're skipping more and more quickly and telling us less and less about how much Cage knows and how much he doesn't know, right? So like 
when we get to the top of that rise where they go over that dune, basically, and there's the trailer park, Mm -hmm. they're looking down at it and he starts to say, well, there are two vehicles we haven't tried. There's a mimic ambush waiting for us. We've got these two vehicles. You go over there, unhook the thing, which she's not going to remember to do. And then I'll try this other vehicle and we'll see how it goes. It does start to create this impression that we're in potentially new territory. Mm -hmm. And that's why the sequence that immediately follows that, which is there's a mimic in the trailer that she forgot to unhook and then they have to take it out. And that's why that sequence remains exciting. Because there's a sense that we're in new territory. We're like, well, oh, they got out of the trailer park. Oh, they've never been out of the trailer park before. So this is all potentially new stuff. But then they start having a conversation. And he's like, well, you told me that your middle name is whatever. And she's like, that's not my middle name. She's like, oh, you told me about this person that you don't want to talk about. So we start to wonder, is this completely new? And what isn't Cage telling her or telling us, potentially? We thought we were back on solid ground. We thought we understood that what was happening is completely new and that things, you know, had a little bit more sort of stakes to them. Or at least we were going to get some more character moments that were, you know, maybe would carry forward and be meaningful in terms of the character relationships and character arcs. But then we start to wonder... And then I think that's kind of how they ease us. That scene where they're driving together in the van after they've taken out out the mimics that were in the trailer, that's where we start to be more firmly put into Rita's headspace Mm -hmm. and start questioning his motives and what he's saying. And I think that that also gives the farmhouse more and more kind of... You have this sort of growing suspicion that there's a lot of depth to the relationship that he's experiencing that she is not. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What are you guys identifying as the midpoint moment? Is it the revelation that he has essentially kind of given up maybe on fulfilling the mission and and is now just kind of wanting to have this one night with her in the house? Because I I was also reading the midpoint. There was an earlier scene that was right at the midpoint of the movie chronologically where he tries to run away just stays in London, goes to a pub, realizes there's no escape from this when the aliens mm-hmm. come. So because that felt more to me like a turning point for his character where it was like, there is no way out of this. Like, I can't just stay in London. I ha- The only way is forward. And this development post beach seemed like we're in the thick of the second half of Act Two now and just kind of complicating things. But that, that was that was my interpretation of the structure. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of talking about that whole kind of middle section where it feels like the movie downshifts a little bit and yeah he goes to the bar he he realizes yeah london will be attacked but then we're also kind of seeing him starting to take yeah these different tactics and there's this like perspective switch so kind of the middle part of the movie where all this kind of transitional stuff is happening Mm -hmm. that is more what i'm talking about in strictly plot terms it's when he gets to the actual like fortress that he's been trying to get to where they think the omega is right And realizes the Omega is not there. Mm -hmm, So then they have to make a new plan. So in terms of plot structure, that's your actual midpoint. I think the character midpoint is where 
he realizes that losing Rita is going to be a real problem for him. Right. Which is why he goes alone. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. Yeah. All that said, I'm I'm with you, Trisha, in that I think I would be less engaged with the movie if it didn't go to all these places, if, if it didn't explore the possibility of him growing attached to this person after, you know, living 100 lifetimes <laughs> doing this day with her. I think I think you have to explore that character stuff. And I really like the way it is revealed with this fake out of, you know, we think we're with him for the first time, like you said, getting past the beach, but we're not. This has already happened a bunch of times. Who knows how many times? Mm-hmm. And then the next thing it does is he loses his power. Yeah. Right. Which, you know, I think is a really smart choice. I think I remember I think when I watched it with a friend, he said, well, yeah, but then it's not a time loop movie anymore. And it's like, true. Like, you don't get the fun of it. And I think the finale does suffer a little. The finale is a little bland to me. The whole taking down the the final things and stuff like that. I'm kind of like, okay, it's just fine. That's unfortunate. But at the same time, now there are real stakes. Now, like, yep. he dies, he dies. There's no going back and, there, and that kind of thing. And I feel like you really, short of some third option we haven't thought of, if it's either the time loop still exists or it doesn't, you kind of have to go with it doesn't every time because then that pulls the rug out from under the character and the audience and gives real stakes to that finale. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I have lots of thoughts about everything <laughs> that was just discussed. So I agree that like what they do with the relationship is interesting and is kind of the thing that then makes you care about the rest of the movie. So I agree that like the decision to do that was a good decision. I think it's probably more for me, the execution and just the aforementioned bumpiness that starts to happen. Like, I feel like Rita starts making choices that I don't understand, like the character motivation for, like, why does she forget to uncouple the van? That feels very unlike her. Or why now when this person that knows everything that's going to happen tells her, if you do this, this will end. Why is she being <laughs> stubborn about it at this point? Why does she insist upon taking off in the helicopter? Yeah. And like, I think there are reasons there, but it doesn't feel mm. as connected to those reasons starting around then. And there's also this interesting thing that, again, is different than Groundhog Day, where Groundhog Day, he's very much trapped in Punxsutawney. He cannot yep. go outside the bounds of this town. And they never, like, he tries. It's not an option. The end. And I think the other thing that starts happening around the middle of this film is that the boundaries of it do start to grow. And I think that's yeah. some of my uneasiness. Where, like, as you said, we spend so much time on this beach. We get to know kind of like the rhythm of the dropship gets attacked. And like, then they're going to together choreograph their movements to get off the beach. But then suddenly he goes to London and like gets a drink at a bar. And like, that's such a turn that it feels like it opens up this kind of infinite world of possibilities where like, oh, he doesn't have to go to the beach. He can just hang out also. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's kind of part of where, you know, then they get to the farmhouse and then he they ultimately are going to go to Paris. It's just interesting how the boundaries of travel are so expansive compared to Groundhog mm -hmm. Day. And, and it enables these other kinds of sequences. But it also, I think, loses some of the focus that I really like about Groundhog Day. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And then kind of like you were saying, Brian, what is really interesting is, again, different from Groundhog Day, they have him lose the ability mm -hmm. to loop. Where in Groundhog Day, that's the last thing that happens and then the end. But in this one, even before that, there's this mechanic where Rita tells him, like, whatever happens, you need to die. Yeah. Because right. if you don't die, 
the day doesn't reset. And so that's kind of a, a fun, twisty thing where it's like the worst possible thing that could happen to him is to not die. Is mm. to not die. And like when he finds the dam and he's fighting the aliens and they're, they've learned to try to knock the gun out of his hand and keep him alive. Right. It's such a fun, right, right. inverse stress of like, oh my God, what if he doesn't die now? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it is fun that they play with all of that. Yeah. I love that. And I also do love, I mean, there's a lot to talk about here, but there are video game emotions that this movie mm-hmm. brings up in me. Of course. Where you got the fun of being able to respawn, you know, after you die, so you can try <laughs> out, try the level a different way and see if you can figure out how to beat the level, you know, infinite times. You can just always respawn. But then there's also the horror of, realizing you can't respawn anymore <laughs> roguelike mm-hmm. games the type of game where you basically have to do the whole run in one go and if you die you're you're back at zero which is almost like worse than death you know depending on mm-hmm. how long that experience is you don't want to go back to the beginning i feel like the game tapped into my gamer emotions with both the fun of being able to respawn and the horror of losing the respawnability and knowing this is the one shot and if you screw it up it's over like yeah, there's no there's no hope left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because there are games where a time loop is in the narrative of the game. So your character, right. like Outer Wilds or something, your character wakes up and like the, the world is the same every time. But also video games are just are a time loop already for the player. Like every right. time you play Super Mario Brothers, the first one, it's the exact same game every time. The Goombas are always in the exact same place. What's changed is your your knowledge, your abilities, right. you know, to, to go through. But then there are games that don't allow for that. Games that are procedurally generated, solitaire, Tetris, you know, games where you could play it a million times. You might get better at the game, but you don't actually know where things mm-hmm. are in the game. And then a lot of video games, they'll have a survival mode where you can only save once an hour or like only when you like sl- your character sleeps, can you save? So then you are in that sort of like, I've lost the ability to <laughs> to time loop kind of power. You can't just right. save and try another tactic and stuff. So I, I think it's interesting that the time loop idea, I think, started with this Japanese novel from 1965, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. And obviously any time travel thing can have sort of time loopiness embedded into it. But I think it's interesting that Groundhog Day came out within the decade after video games started becoming in the mainstream. So we were all sort of more open to this idea of like repeating something over and over and trying it different ways and that kind of thing in a way that we really weren't up until something like video games were around. Yeah. I'm still thinking about what you said, Michael, about the boundaries of the world. That was something that we really talked about when we were putting together the Groundhog Day video and and even in the podcast as well, which is that spatially trapping, right? You know, the Groundhog Day video, Mm -hmm. we ended up calling it an inescapable premise. I feel like spatially trapping somebody in like a very, very narrow, you know, world is what video games do as well, right? Like, You just said, Alex, like, you have to play the level over again. It's like, well, yeah, and you know the boundaries of the level. You can't just leave that level Mm -hmm. and go running somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it does start to get, like, I really like the scene at the, I think it's the embassy. Yeah. Where they have to, like, it's like it becomes a weird heist for a few minutes. I love it. I mean. (laughs) I love the choreography as he's spinning her around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, this guy always recognizes you, like, duck into this, like, you know, room for a second. And it's really cute and fun. And their conversation with Brendan Gleeson is also great, mm-hmm. where they're like, you're very stubborn. And she's like, don't shoot him again, like, yeah, right. <laughs> kind of thing. It's it's all really, really fun, that sequence. But it does start to make you 
wonder how inescapable is this premise? Because it seems like Mm -hmm. it might be escapable, right? It starts to make the audience go, well, there's definitely stuff you haven't tried, right? Like, right, yeah. In the way that, like, once he gets to the dam, if that was the entire movie and we didn't get to the dam and the Omega was there and we didn't get to the dam until the very, very last sequence and it was just like beach to the dam and then we know all of the things in between and we had trapped the world a little bit better and all the things in between are this trailer park and this field and this farmhouse and those are the different kind of like little mini levels right Mm -hmm. it really would contain the story better and there probably is a version of this movie that you could do that is really trapped within those confines that would end up being more character focused than this ends up being because that's the thing about Groundhog Day that gives Groundhog Day it's sort of like power and what it is, is that it's a real character story. Whereas mm-hmm. I would say this kind of is not like this right. is a great action movie, but the character arc isn't the focus of it. Sure. Right. Like Cage goes from being kind of a weaselly coward to being the guy that saves the world. But there isn't a ton of time spent in the script on his inner journey toward what does it mean for me to have this responsibility? Why is it me that has to do this? And and having Rita empower him to be that person, I think, is a cool and interesting idea. And if that were the focus, like Rita is the selfless soldier who made her that way. Why is she that way? What does that mean to her? Right. That's something I'd love to know more about. If the backbone of the entire arc was Cage needs to want to save the world, he needs to want to not run away, he needs to accept the responsibility that this is his job and no one else can do it. If that were the backbone structure of the arc, then you would have to spend a lot more time jamming these two characters together. Instead, I get what you're saying at the midpoint, he leaves her behind, gets to the Omega, realizes it's not there and then it kind of spins out into this completely other thing which is a really entertaining second half of an action movie but is at that point not really a character story anymore right as we've hinted at the writing process for this film was not a clean and straightforward mm-hmm. one and it was interesting you know i watched all the behind the scenes of this and they were really like above average behind the scenes. I I'm always on the lookout for behind the scenes that show you what making a movie is actually like and isn't just, you know, kind of press propaganda stuff. Right. Press kit stuff. <laughs> right. Many times they're they're interviewing Doug Lyman, the director, and he was talking about like, yeah, you know, it'd be great if the script was done. You know, we're we'd start shooting tomorrow or we're rehearsing the scene from act three, but we haven't written act three yet. So there's no dialogue. We're just kind of earth, but like mm-hmm. we're making it work. And <laughs> they cast the movie when there wasn't a script. So it was like, okay, well we have Tom, let's create like a cool, like character for Tom Cruise. And then, you know, I cast Emily Blunt. And so it was like, yeah, let's, let's talk to Emily Blunt and see like, let's create a character for her. Cause that wasn't in the script before. And so kind of that with like, with a lot of the the movie, it seems like it was, kind of being figured out and retooled along the way. And I think to some degree, it seems like it really paid off. Like the actors and Emily Blunt talks about how she really enjoyed being so involved in the creation process and getting to shape what her character Mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. And I think that obviously paid off. Like her character is easily one of the best parts of this movie. For sure. So I think that's, that's a really cool part of this. 
the interesting thing with sort of action hero main character arcs and stuff is oftentimes there isn't much of an arc or the arc is sort of is sort of tacked on every movie should strive to have character arcs obviously but like right. you can kind of get away with it when it's just your goal is to save the world your your goal is to get your daughter back or your goal is to stop this killer whatever it is and i think that like the character study version of this movie is Tom Cruise spends the first half of the movie just getting the hell out of there and like doing something else. And then maybe the midpoint is him going like, I, maybe I should try to save the world. <laughs> like the Tom Cruise-iness of his character and the action moviness of this is his main objective right away is to save things, is to actually succeed at the their objective, basically. Like he still has that in his mind. And that's why it is sort of striking when he goes to a bar and just says, I don't want to deal with this today, because that's sort of, that's not the action hero thing. The action hero thing is, well, of course I have to continue doing this. So I think it works for a movie like this, but it's also, like you're saying, there isn't much of a character arc embedded into it because his objective right off the bat is to succeed and save the world. Well, in fairness, I would say his his objective at first, I think, is just to like survive. And when Emily Blunt reveals mm -hmm. she once had this power and lost it, he's like, oh, good. How do I lose it? You know, like he mm -hmm. he's not necessarily in it for the world at first, but but pretty quickly once once she explains the situation to him, he he's kind of along for the ride and he's doing the training and all that stuff. Going back to what you're saying, Michael, about the almost like improvisational mm -hmm. <laughs> approach to what that stresses me out to imagine doing this with this kind of a movie. <laughs> but I had similar feelings hearing about Christopher McQuarrie's process with his Mission Impossible films and hearing about Fallout, which is this massive production and how much was just kind of being figured out like as they went and kind of written and pieced together, like laying the tracks down as the train was going. It's striking to me that he was involved with this project as a screenwriter brought on at the last second to finish the screenplay as they were filming it. So I, I feel like Chris McQuarrie and Doug Lyman might have a like-minded approach <laughs> to these to these projects where it's like they must have this amazing confidence to just kind of dive in and just know they're going to figure it out as they go or hope they're going to figure it out. You know, with Mission Impossible movies, Christopher McQuarrie just pulls it off in an amazing of way. It yeah, yeah. seems impossible after hearing about his process, but, but it works out. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's obviously really good instincts on display here right. on the part of Doug Lyman and Christopher McQuarrie. There's a story about how Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Doug Lyman, had the screenwriter write 40 or 50 different endings. And then ultimately settled on the first one that the screenwriter had oh written, my which is God. <laughs> sometimes you got to go down all the wrong paths to make sure the one that was in front of you at the beginning was the right one. Look, we've all been there with Michael. <laughs> <laughs> is Michael Doug Lyman? I was going to say it's a little it's a little uh, uh, edge of tomorrow -y here. So <laughs> Doug Lyman has admitted that his style is like workshopping things. Right. But in order for that to work, you do have to be. You do have to have strong instincts. Right. And I agree when you guys were talking, when, you know, Brian, you just were talking about like the character focused version of this. I think that there is like a bad character focused version of this where there's a lot of really like emotional scenes or like a very long monologue of a backstory from Emily Blunt's <laughs> character that I right. don't want. You know, right. there definitely is. And like we get into their childhoods and like there, there definitely is a very bad like character arc driven version of this Definitely. movie. And I agree that handling the characters with 
a lot of like mystery and kind of lightness of touch where we're left to kind of piece things together quite a bit. You know, we hear about Emily Blunt's um, characters, like former whoever he was, someone important to her. Right. Mm -hmm. And we hear nothing else about him. Mm -hmm. We kind of don't need to. Right. It reminded me a little bit of, you know, my favorite Doug Lyman movie, which is The Born Identity, which is it's a character action movie, but we don't know anything about Jason Bourne. And that's kind of the whole point. The light touch here is for the most part the right instinct. I just wish that there was a little bit more with the Tom Cruise character that was like, I definitely don't want this responsibility. How do I get rid of it? And then a moment where it's like, Okay, if it's me, then it's me. Mm -hmm. And I have a quote from Doug Lyman here where he was talking about how he kind of sees Emily Blunt, Rita, as being the hero of this movie, where she kind of doesn't have a superpower, but Tom Cruise's character does. And so she's put in the position of like, how do I use this other person's superpower to save the world? Right. And I think that's really interesting. And I really love their dynamic in the first half where she's training him. I love it. And she just keeps shooting him over and over. And he's like, <laughs> no, I'm really fine. And she's it's like, so much fun. It's great. He is really being treated as a tool or a weapon right. that she needs right. to like have working to, to enact her mission. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Which I think, again, sets up a potential moment for his character where he like has to make the choice on his own. And he does go off by himself to go to the dam and then realize the mag is not there and da 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 in the second half of the movie, as we talked about. Mm -hmm. But there isn't really a character focused moment where we see that from Cage, where, you know, Rita has been pushing me this whole time and I've been going along with what Rita wants because Rita is the hero. Cause there's a really, there's a really easy rewrite here potentially where there's like okay if you know i'll help you until we do it and then you know my life is my own basically right right like that kind of bargain deal thing that we talk about that's a kind of a screenwritery device i'll help you until then and then i don't want to help you anymore none of this is my problem kind of thing and then we have to see him like take on the mantle of responsibility himself the way that we see in our good superhero sort of origin stories and this movie is just kind of missing that one piece at a certain point in the there's second like half that I sort of, of wish it had. I know. Mm -hmm. There's like shades of it that kind of like spread out. You know, there's there's the pub scene. There's him grieving Rita dying for the umpteenth time in the helicopter and him choosing to go by himself to the dam. But yeah, you're right. There's not a pivotal. Like That's why it was hard to pinpoint the midpoint, you know, because mm. it was like there isn't right. a clear one moment of him stepping into a clear transformation. Now I'm in this new person. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. It's 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 a lot of elements are there, but they don't crystallize in a really satisfying way. But as Brian is pointing out, in a way that isn't necessarily to the detriment of the fun of watching it. Sure. Because at its heart, it is like a good splashy action movie. And, you know, again, I would rather have a good splashy action movie that doesn't quite crystallize the character's journey than the bogged down emotional version of this, for sure. Right. And, and there's also something that was so refreshing about this movie when it came out, because we were coming off of the Christopher Nolan, you know, produced <laughs> DC universe, mm -hmm. you know, where it's like mm -hmm. everything like it can't be too fun. It's got to be really dark and gritty. And, yeah. you, know, you know, the trailer has to have some kind of poetic, dark, <laughs> you know, speech over its overtones. And it's just it was really refreshing and nice to have just a fun movie. And it's OK that it's just fun. And we're not it goes to some dark places, but not in a way that's trying to beat you over the head or show how what like an Oscar caliber darkness sure. we have here. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very comic action movie, I think. I was thinking mm-hmm. about this sort of, this like sliding scale between comedy and action because you have things, you know, one end of the spectrum, you have comedies, just Bridesmaids, Groundhog Day, whatever, just normal comedies, uh, even if they are sci-fi or time, whatever, like just movies that like they're, their main thing is to do comedy. And then you have action comedies as a genre, basically. Your Rush Hours, Men in Black, The Other Guys, mm-hmm. things like that. And then the other end of the spectrum, if we're just talking like straight action, you have some really serious action movies, but most action movies are also have a comic tone to them. So like really serious would be something like Taken where the mm-hmm. the plot doesn't allow for a lot of comedy. You kind of can't have someone joking when like their daughter's in the situation he's in, even if the movie can be straight tooken. Or a movie like Jason Bourne, which just takes itself like way Ugh. too seriously. Yeah. Uh, and it's like trying really hard to be like, look, and it doesn't have the fun of the other Bourne movies, for instance. Mm-hmm. But like an average action movie. Die Hard, Terminator 2, Aliens, like they're still really funny. There's a ton of comedy in them. Right. But they're still not comedies. So then then you get to the middle of these two extremes. And that's where I think Doug Lyman lives and kind of like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Edge of Tomorrow. It's Mm -hmm. like they are still very much trying to do jokes and gags and comedy things. They're not just sort of funny along the way, but they are like trying to be jokey and gaggy and stuff, but they're still not, they're still action movies mainly, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. And I was thinking like Lethal Weapon lives somewhere in this weird, like the, the later, the sequels are a little bit more just action comedies, but like, especially the first movie and the second movie, they're sort of that same, like, yeah, it's a straight action movie and it gets really dark, but also like, Mel Gibson's going to joke around a lot and make funny faces and like Shane Black humor is going to be happening. Yeah, yeah. So it's just interesting to see that sliding scale and how there is sort of this middle of them where it's like, it's definitely an action movie, but it's also like actually actively trying to be a comedy rather than sort of having comedy as just like a, another layer on top of the of the the story. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, there's still like consequences, like the the action is still they're right. you're supposed to feel like they are in danger and i feel like this can kind of also lead us to talking about the storming the beach sequence sequences because i feel like that's to me what this movie this holds up completely and i think it's one of the best action sequences i feel like i've, I've ever seen as far mm. as like this is a a sci-fi alien invasion movie but you've never seen a scene like this mm-hmm. in a movie like that and the action just the build up i mean even if you know it's a time loop movie, the amount that things go wrong yeah. during the first storming of the beach is mm-hmm. so compelling and is mm. done in such a, a visceral way. And you're there with Tom Cruise and it sets up everything brilliantly. First of all, I think it just highlights how much fun it is to see things go wrong. So more things going wrong in action, please. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to to talk a little bit about how they did all of it because it's this also brilliant blend of special effects and visual effects like that was something i was blown away by when i first saw it also was like the cgi felt real and felt like it had weight it wasn't bouncy it was and it was hard to tell where the cgi ended and where it began Mm -hmm. so the second unit director in this movie simon crane so basically his role and the second unit director in a lot of action movies is like he directed the action Basically, and so Simon Crane was kind of responsible for the entire beach scene and how it was directed and pulling off all these things. 
and he works with Doug Lyman to figure out, you know, Doug Lyman's more focused on character stuff and like how each thing is telling the story. But Simon Crane is like figuring out the action. He was a stunt coordinator on Saving Private Ryan. Hmm. And I think obviously this right. beach Good scene choice. borrows very heavily and is part of what grounds it and makes it real. They also built a beach on a like a back lot in in England and surrounded it with green screens but there was just a huge beach so there's actual practical place where they were and then the wire work is some of the most like advanced wire work ever where like basically it's the ideal blend i think of live action and CGI where when Tom Cruise is getting lifted up and thrown around or like dives under the ground and then his suit iron mans him forward and then he jumps up or like when Emily Blunt is spinning in the air. That's all actually happening. Like mm-hmm. there's these crazy wires pulling them in all these different directions and it's choreographed beautifully. And then that is interwoven with the CGI elements and the aliens to make it all come together. And I feel like this, it's the goal. It's like, it's the right blend right. of visual effects and special effects that I think everyone should aim for. Mm-hmm. Well, and they're wearing those suits for real. Real like, suits. Real. Yeah, right. they have 85 pound suits on or whatever. Right. Again, going back to Doug Lyman, seems like he might be frustrating to work with, but also, you know, has good instincts and makes good calls most of the time. They didn't have to do those suits. And in fact, probably they would have preferred to do them. Everybody would have preferred to do them <laughs> with CGI. They have this weight to them. And when the actors are moving around in them, especially on the beach, you really feel the the pressure and the tension and like you were saying the cumbersome like how difficult it would be to be a soldier trying to like move in any sort of quick or like smooth formation when you're in a suit like that and i think it's a really also like a really cool visual contrast to the way the mimics look because the mimics are so fast and so scary in the way that they move and fluid (laughs) yeah just versatile and and then you have these like they basically like, you know, tin soldiers kind of trying to like move around on the beach and you just start to feel the hopelessness of how outmatched they are. I think it's totally the right call and and it pays off so well in that beach scene. The alternative way that they could have done this is the digital double version, you know, where Mm. it's like you have them all have helmets on to kind of obscure their faces a little bit. And then anytime they are spinning in the air or doing impossible jumps, they just become a CGI creation entirely. That is when I say a movie feels too bouncy. It's because you feel it. Like even if it's amazingly rendered, there's just something that is off when somebody becomes entirely a digital creation and is jumping and spinning. You just, you know, it's not real. And, And I, there's something about the action in this movie that feels visceral because of the weight of the suits and because you don't have the, the digital double coming in and making them suddenly kind of a smooth, shiny object. And I really do appreciate like the commitment from Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt because I, I watched some behind the scenes as well. And Tom Cruise was really all about, let's make these real suits. I want to have a real thing on. Of course and he was. Poor Emily Blunt was <laughs> like, how much does this weigh? And it was like, oh, it's going to weigh about 90 pounds. <laughs> like your body weight basically the first day she was like she cried she was like i how am i gonna do this but then she Mm. then she just like went for it and like got used to it basically (laughs) so yeah the hardcore actors kudos to them tom cruise would like wear it like for six hours a day all day when he didn't need to so he could learn how to like move perfectly in it like just all the like he created a contest amongst all the other actors to see over time who could get into their suits fastest extremely on brand (laughs) right super on brand but also like 
the faster everyone can get into their suits, the more movie we can make. So the Tom Cruise craziness, he's really found the industry in which he's so dedicated. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's so crazy. It's great. I just picture him being like, I'm going to wear this suit for six hours while sitting in this cockpit. So I can learn how to fly this plane while also being underwater and holding my breath because I need to do all of these things. Because right. On a motorcycle. On a motorcycle. <laughs> I agree with you, Michael. The beach scene holds up so, so, so well because of how it looks. Also because of how much time we spend in it. It's so good that it makes the ending even more kind of frustrating. Yeah. One of the coolest things, and we, we mentioned this, one of the coolest things that this movie does is raise the stakes by taking away his power. I love it. I love it when he like is in the car. They're in the car accident. We see he's bleeding. They're like, oh, you're not going to die. Come on. Like, you have to die. You're going to ruin it all. And it's a great payoff to that setup that is way earlier in the movie. It's great. But then that last sequence has the potential to have this tension underneath of it. Like the longer that rubber band stretches, the longer that he's still alive and like dodging death, barely, barely, barely. It has the potential to be as weighty and feel as tense and feel as, you know, this impossible mountain to climb for him as that beach scene does right at the beginning. And I wish it did. And it just kind of doesn't. Yeah. Also, and I think it has to do with some of the choices where by the ending, they're getting thrown around right. in a way that should kill them. Right. That could kill them earlier in the movie because of the plot device right. that allowed them to die. That's yeah. right. Yeah, because it was convenient for those kinds of moves to kill them earlier. But now those moves won't kill them because the plot won't let it happen. It starts to take the stakes out from under it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 100%. I, I feel like the scary choice, but I think the choice that would have worked better, you know, you have this action movie and the finale is supposed to be the biggest, most exploding part ever because it's an action movie. But I think in this action movie, because of the way they've built up these stakes and because of the terror you feel as soon as if he dies, he dies, I would have loved to see them like scale the ending way down, like have it be in real time. Like you're saying, Trisha, have it just be this really tense sequence where just like walking in sight of an alien is terrifying because you know how quick these aliens are. So if he gets spotted, mm -hmm. it's all over. Like you could just make so much tension out of this because of this crazy amount of stakes you've built up. But that's a hard choice to end a big action movie with a long, slow, quiet, tense thing. Right. But that's what I would have loved to see. Another option, you know, talking about video games that are always the same versus procedurally generated what if he gets to the boss level and the special aliens there are also in the time loop so they do whatever the hell they want each time he comes back so like let's say he doesn't have he hasn't lost his power but then every time he goes back in the aliens are moving a different way than they were last time and he can't sort of guess what they're going to do and then it becomes this like really complicated very hard to figure out kind of thing and maybe there aren't stakes because he still has the time the power or whatever but like that would be an interesting take on it that would make that ending feel fresh and feel like the beach scene rather than just like okay it's just kind of an action movie now yeah mm -hmm. it's interesting you say that because i read the macquarie at one point suggested adding a twist in the paris scene where the aliens are resetting time during the strike but he was just like, we're just so exhausted by this point. We need to end this movie. <laughs> they did think about that as a potential way for the movie to keep evolving is 
they're resetting time on his Paris strike. And so, but I think it, it is, it's tough at that point. You got to end it at some point. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I do feel like it, it is, if I'm remembering correctly, there's this sense of like, we have this power because like we got it from the alien blood or whatever, but then like that never really comes back into play again. Right. Like, so it's sort of this kind of thread that's just kind of left dangling there where you would assume what that means is the aliens also like have a like time loopy ability or something like that. Well, they kind of suggest that because he has it, they don't have it temporarily. There's some, there's some weird thing where it's like, if the human has it, they don't have it, which is a very convenient rule. Gotcha. Right. It's if anybody kills an alpha, the Omega resets the day, but essentially Tom Cruise becomes the alpha that can't die. So like once he is that alpha, whenever he dies, the Omega resets the day because it thinks that he's an alpha kind of. Gotcha. But yeah, I would have loved to see what you're talking about, Michael, where it's like, if we could clear somehow, you know, so they have these drones that are the mimics we mostly see, right? If they could find some way to clear all the drones out of that final confrontation, because we've just spent so much time fighting the drones. I don't feel like they're scary anymore. Mm-hmm. But the just the challenges of getting to the Omega and fighting and killing the Omega while you're human and you cannot die, that I think would, would feel like, yeah, climaxy enough. I'm not exactly trying to rewrite this. <laughs> <laughs> I am a little bit, but I, I agree with you that like it would have been... A hard sell, I think, from a just a marketing yeah. standpoint is like, well, and I like that they bring back all the J squad. Right. That gets. Yeah, paid off. that's kind of yeah. nice to have them back a little bit. Just just one last rewrite thought. Yeah. Um, when Michael, you were saying, like, we spend so much time on the beach scene and we establish the stakes there so well. That's another way you could go with the ending is if their only path to anywhere in Europe always had to come through that beach like if there wasn't an option to take off from mm-hmm. the army base but like then it's like you know, they have memorized that beach sequence enough oh that'd be cool they've gone through the beach sequence maybe a hundred times because he's, he's gone to that cottage he knows how much so they have to do the beach while they're mortal i love it let's <laughs> see the entire beach sequence end to end as a long take, just uh-huh. say it. As a yeah. long take with them, with them mortal. That is a great payoff. Like sure. that is that's a better payoff than the Louvre. I, I have to say, yeah. <laughs> I'm into it. Yeah, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Edge of Tomorrow? Brian, do you want to start us off? Uh, sure. So a, a friend and I were just talking the other day about how Groundhog Day has become like a genre, you know, a subgenre mm-hmm. of movies, as, as we talked about at the top of the episode. I've seen most of the big ones over the years, Source Code, Edge of Tomorrow, Russian Doll, Happy Death Day, sequel, Palm Springs. And what I realized as we were talking is that each one, again, we talked about most of this at the beginning of the episode, but each one does a different spin on the idea that you didn't see coming which makes each one exciting and a separate part of the conversation. My girlfriend also watched Russian Doll, Happy Death Day, and Palm Springs with me and has seen Groundhog Day, had not seen Edge of Tomorrow. And during Edge of Tomorrow, she was like, oh, like this is, you know, this is happening. Okay, I thought this was going to happen, but instead this is happening. And it's cool to see how I I really enjoyed watching Happy Death Day, where it was like, we know what you think time loop movies are. So we're going to throw this wrench in the works like, oh, cool. Now I don't know what's going to happen anymore. Like first 20 minutes in, you're like, okay, then X, Y, and Z is going to happen. And then 
we get our sort of the day is done right doesn't happen and uh, you know for every time loop movie you've heard of there's like 10 you haven't like there's a wikipedia page for it and i'm guessing they're just not great movies but i'm also guessing they don't add a new thing to the conversation the way most of the movies i mentioned are like it's this but there's this element that you didn't mm-hmm. hadn't thought of before and which is why i love edge of tomorrow just like oh you had the power and then lost it you know and like how how that changes the conversation how it allows her to just click into what what he's talking about and allow her to train him and everything. But as my friend and I were talking, I compared it to something like the body swap movie, which was popular in the eighties and how it Mm -hmm. sort of like came and went. And I think it was a big part of it is they're all the same premise, but the spin is like who the characters are or something, you know? So it's freaky Mm -hmm. Friday, mother and daughter, freaky Friday remake. Mother and daughter, like father, like son (laughs) from 1987, father and son, vice versa from 1988, father and son. And then you have like the change up, which came 20 years, 15 years after that. No one cared about this thing anymore. And you've got Jason Bateman and Ryan Reynolds. They're trying to do like an R rated thing with it. So it's like, okay, at least it's interesting. Not a great movie, but at least you're like, okay, you were trying to do like, what's a different take on this? There's a, a horror movie that just came out called Freaky, where Vince Vaughn mm-hmm. is like a serial killer <laughs> and it's a body swap thing. Doesn't look great. And it's nothing wrong with the idea or like that subgenre. It's just that almost any movie you name is just, it's the exact same premise, but like the father's a doctor and the kid is this or whatever, you know, and it's just sort of, it's like Groundhog Day. If it was like, he's a sportscaster instead of a weatherman, it's like, okay, that's the same thing, you know, or even Groundhog Day, but with a whole totally different character. It's like, okay, but you're still what's next. What is, then that's, what's been cool about the time loop movies is they're all a different step in the, in the conversation. So the universal lesson is if you are interested in a high concept idea like this, go for it. But what is your story? adding to the conversation how is your story evolving this subgenre and not just doing something that has been done before my friend and i were talking about it because he was like i had this idea for a time loop movie and i was like that sounds awesome because we have that we haven't seen that version of it before mm-hmm. i mean any genre you're working on what is your story adding to it rather than just recycling from the past but especially something like this which is you can so easily point to here are all the movies that have done this thing what makes it special Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's one of the tenets of like creating things. It's mm-hmm. like add to the conversation. Right. Like, I, I like that a lot. Very much. Alex, what about you? Yeah. I just want to reemphasize, I guess, how awesome it is that Emily Blunt is the trainer in this movie and Tom yep. Cruise is the trainee. And I think it just, the lesson is, you know, if they were designing this movie partially after you cast Tom Cruise, Emily Blunt, how cool to, design it in this way around these two actors against type against their previous roles because it makes it so much more fun as a viewer to not really know what's going to happen like if tom cruise begins as like a marketing pr firm coward there's a journey to watch there as opposed to him beginning as the best secret agent they have Mm -hmm. you know there's not a whole lot of development that can happen from that point on and to have emily blunt come in where you've seen her maybe in like devil wears prada and these (laughs) other very different roles and to see her totally embody this Mm -hmm. like hardened soldier role it's just so much fun so i think yeah casting against type with actors that are able to have that range can make for a much more just surprising fun good experience as an audience member uh when you have superstars like that like give me what i don't expect from their archetypes that they've they've always been kind of shoved into Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does kind of a similar thing that Fury Road does, where it's like right. you have your archetypal 
white male hero, you know, but then you realize like what's more important there is that they are there to help, you know, this other character who they meet, who actually is the one that they need in order to succeed. Mm -hmm. This whole time I've been trying to like, remember what movie this reminded me of. And I just was Googling and found Fury Road. (laughs) Right. During this period of time also where it was like, we weren't quite at the point of like, yeah, like female protagonists, we've decided are actually make money because we're afraid of dumb things. Yep. But like, yeah, these examples where it's like big male star is like on the poster and he's like the central character, but the movie is actually about somebody else. And right, like, right. it's better for that. And I yeah. think that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's something that you mentioned actually on a Q&A we did recently, Trisha, which is there's still a lot of like individualism in this movie and, you know, a single yeah. single heroes. But I think like both Mad Max and this film. Yeah, you, know, it's, it, you at least have two people instead of one person that are the hero, and I, I think it's yeah. it's also rewarding to see more films where it's like not not one person can do it alone. It is mm-hmm. it is a team that pulls off the impossible thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. Which is why you love all the Avengers movies so much. It's that it's that <laughs> thing. That, uh... I like some of them, but they're really bouncy. <laughs> so many digital doubles. The suits are fake. Everything's fake. <laughs> Nobody's wearing anything. They're all wearing green screens. They're all wearing green screens, basically. (laughs) None of their suits are real. This kind of dovetails into my lesson. So I'm going to insert it right here, which is we've been talking about and as we're talking about right now, like what is the role of visual effects and in movies? What is the role of special effects? Special effects for people that get tripped up on the lingo. Special effects are things done on set in camera. Visual effects are things that are added in post-production. So CGI is like, visual effects, although now the lines are blurring a lot with the Mandalorian and the new way they're shooting things. It's really cool. Just thinking about what film is and what a camera is and how cameras reveal artifice in a way where no other medium kind of does. The classic example that my roommate in Uh, when I first moved to LA, always talked about was he was a theater director. And so he could direct a scene in a black box theater and have two actors sitting on tiny little stools and say, this is a scene where two people are driving in a car. And the audience is like, okay, cool. I'm watching two people driving in a car, even though there's nothing, no Mm -hmm. car anywhere. There's like room for imagination. And as soon as you point a camera at that black box scene and say, imagine they're in a car, it's like, no, this doesn't work. Like, this doesn't make any sense. It's been making me think what are the the important things to have captured in a camera to help sell that reality mm. and i feel like lighting is is an important thing obviously but movement mm. is something that i think we do just as humans intuitively we can feel when something is moving real or not and even mm. their movements in this movie where you know there's some kind of wire pulling tom cruise across the ground or it's spinning her in the air mm. but there's still physics happening. It's like yeah. enhanced right. physics, but it's still real. They are bound by the rules of nature. Right. To some right. Degree. right. In some yeah. way. It's watching Legolas go down on the shield versus jumping up on the horse. Like one actually happens, <laughs> you know, and the other one didn't. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you might love both. You might think they both are cheesy. It doesn't matter. But like one was done in camera, in camera, one wasn't. And that's the distinction I think you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think this movie is just such a great example of like when these two things are used together, the cumulative effect can be great. And so holding this up as an example to reference mm-hmm. in the future. 
Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, mine is about trusting the audience to put pieces together. And I like how this movie, it, it almost feels like it's, um you know, skipping stones across the surface of water in places where for the first, you know, three or four respawns for Tom Cruise's character, we feel like we're watching all of it, right? Where it's like, He's going to try it this way this time in the barracks and he's going to try to roll under the truck and miss. <laughs> and like, so funny. And so it's painful. really funny. And we feel like we're watching all of it. But then there's one, I think it's like the third or fourth time we get to the beach and he grabs Emily Blunt and he's like, you have to help me because you know what's happening to me. And as he's talking to her, mimics are coming and he just like shoots them <laughs> without looking at them. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's a really great moment for comedy as you're pointing out, Brian, because this movie is really funny, mm. but it also is trusting us. So it's yes. that's where we start to kind of notice that we're skipping quickly across time. Right. Where it's like, okay, he obviously, even though this is the first time we are being shown this, this is not the first time that this is happening. We get it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the movie is really great for the most part at choosing to leave us hanging with very little information yeah. about how mm. much something has happened or has not happened. And unless Cage specifically tells us he's never been here before, we start to learn to assume that maybe he has. So like the scene, the little mini heist at the embassy, <laughs> right? It's the first time we're seeing any of it, but they're already pros at it because Cage has done it before. And so for the most part, I think this movie does a really great job of that sort of less is more trust us to figure it out. Yes. Trust us to roll with it. And that's what makes it fun. And I think with the character relationships, as I said, I wish there were more from them, but I only want a little more from them mm -hmm. because a lot of the things that are already in here are done with that same kind of trust. And so when Tom Cruise says to Emily Blunt at the midpoint where she's like, why do I matter? Right. Where he's like, I, I'm, I'm really trying to get you to survive this. She's trying to get in the helicopter and she's like, why does it matter what happens to me? And he just says, I wish I didn't know you, but I do. That's a really great line that shows that lightness of touch in the dialogue where it implies all of this depth mm -hmm. to their relationship that we don't need a great big heavy monologue to tell us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I said, I wish there was more, a little bit more of their relationship and more to Cage's character arc here. But the moments where this movie does it, it does it really well with kind of the perfect little lightness of touch there's a line it's in one of the later born movies so it's not in the doug lyman born movie but there's a line where somebody says something to born about his past it's the julia styles character and she's talking about how she helped brainwash him basically he's kind of like you know what happened or whatever and she just says it was difficult for me with you yeah it's ultimatum it's ultimatum it's so good yeah. it's that exact like Here's just a little bit. We we never hear anything else about his relationship with the Julia Stiles character. That's mm -hmm. all we hear. It was difficult for me with you. And when you get a great line like that and a great sort of here is a few words. Here are a few words. Here's our gesture. Here's a, you know, and that's kind of what tips Emily Blunt's character off in the first place that he's been there before where he goes to pour three sugars in her coffee. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, it's three sugars. It's a great little moment where it's like this implies a world of things that have happened and so like i said for the most part i think this movie nails it pretty pretty well well it's really satisfying as an audience member to do the filling in yourself and to realize oh yeah. i'm seeing the tip of an iceberg of other scenes that are 
all implied here. Mm -hmm. And we want to do that. Like that's what we've talked about in our No Country for Old Men video where two plus two, like we want to do the arithmetic in our head, Mm -hmm. put the pieces together and realize there's a bigger story underneath the surface. Like, yeah, please more of that from big movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great lesson. Awesome. What have you guys been watching recently? Brian. Uh, so I watched Minari, Ooh. the uh, movie that is, you know, won a Golden Globe for foreign language film because when an American filmmaker makes a movie in America, but sometimes the characters speak Korean, it's a foreign language film. But uh, it's yeah, written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung. It's about a Korean family who moves to moves from California to Arkansas and starts a farm on this little plot of land. But they're sort of financial tension there between the mother and the father and alex if you haven't seen this movie yet it's basically a24 does terrence malick so you need you need all of this <laughs> in your life. two thumbs up happening yeah. right now yeah <laughs> it's uh, it's beautifully shot it just has this very malick kind of feel and it's one of the few times i've ever noticed the sound design there's just always crickets or leaves rustling and you just always they basically live in like a trailer so it's like even when they're inside it still feels like they're in this field kind of and uh, so just very immersive and the story and performances are great it it has sort of the levity of a comedy it's sort of marketed as a comedy but it's still very much a drama which always keeps you on your toes you're never quite sure whether we're like kind of in fun land or whether it's like what's ooh, what's really going to happen here kind of thing and yeah it's just a it's a really cool um really interesting story and just really beautifully done mm. very cool trisha what have you been watching so i decided to rewatch which I do periodically, some of my favorite Audrey Hepburn movies. I rewatched one that I'd only seen one time before, and it was a long time ago, so I didn't really remember anything about it. Um, But I rewatched Paris When It Sizzles, which is from 1964. It's William Holden and Audrey Hepburn, who are just wonderful together, directed by Richard Klein. And it's a movie about screenwriting. It's really fun. It's uh, William Holden plays like kind of a hack studio screenwriter who has been frittering away all of his money um, and time to write a script in Paris. And then the weekend before his script is due, he hasn't written any of it. And so he hires Audrey Hepburn as a typist and they sit together in like a hotel room and figure out a script and like break the story together and figure out the script over like two days. It's just like a wonderful, if you're in like the movie business and you're into screenwriting, it's just like still really feels like really sharp satire of screenwriters and the movie business where William Holden is always trying to teach Audrey Hepburn about he's like, you know, and then they kiss and they roll around on the bed and then we dissolve. And she's like, well, you're not going to get away with that. That's really suggestive. And he's (laughs) like, no, we dissolved. You don't know what's going to happen next. Why is your mind in the gutter? Like I say, they're playing Parcheesi. And then it like fades back in and they're playing Parcheesi on the bed. It's just really clever. There's lots of little cameos where William Holden will be because, you know, it's it's showing the movie that they're writing, like cutting back and forth where mm, it's kind of showing mm-hmm. the movie they're writing together. Like William Holden will be like, now this character walks in and she's like, OK, what does he look like? He's, uh, he kind of looks like Tony Curtis. And then like Tony Curtis strolls in, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> it's great. It's really great. If you haven't seen it and you like screenwriting and comedies and Audrey Hepburn, it's, uh, it's just really wonderful watch so Uh, i watched it on my canopy so you can check it out on your canopy but i'm sure it's downloadable or findable in a number of different places if i remember correctly they are also in billy wilder's sabrina 
right? They are both in, yeah. Yep. The best, the best Sabrina. I'm sorry, Harrison Ford, but sure. Um, <laughs> yes, which is another one of my favorite Audrey Hepburn movies. But I've seen that one like probably 18 times. So this was one I enjoyed revisiting that I don't actually have memorized. Sorry, but the best Sabrina was when I played the William Holden character in the play in the early oh, 2000s. Oh, wow. Okay. It's not I'm out sorry, there, I so. misspoke. Wow. Yeah. All right. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> what was the name of the film again, Trisha? Paris When It Sizzles. All right. Mm hmm. It's a fun name. Alex, what about you? So I watched another uh, Golden Globe winner, but it was for Rosamund Pike in the Best Actress in a Comedy category, which is the Netflix mm-hmm. film I Care a Lot, which was a really fun, delicious uh, black comedy about essentially. Rosamund Pike being her Gone Girl character, but the capitalist entrepreneur version. (laughs) So just basically sociopathic people doing sociopathic things in relation to the American dream. Uh, Shot beautifully. Peter Dinklage is in it as kind of her rival. Uh, It's just a good fun Friday night Netflix watch. I would recommend it just for a good time. Pretty people doing bad things. What's not to love? Yeah. Sounds kind of like Nightcrawlery. It was very Nightcrawlery. Yeah, but with Rosamund Pike, which is great. Yeah, that's cool. I recently rewatched D2, The Mighty Ducks. Wow. (laughs) You just went straight straight to two? (laughs) So not super intentionally. I like came out of the office, my my home office, and my girlfriend was like, had been like messing around on Disney Plus and had just pressed play on D2, Mighty Ducks and was laughing at the fact that she was watching Mighty Ducks. And then I was laughing about it and I sat down next to her and then we ended up watching the whole movie. (laughs) It's so good. It's pretty good. (laughs) Like it's not (laughs) flawless. Certainly it's better than it needs to be. I feel like structurally it's sound. It's doing really interesting kind of sequel things and playing with Dawson Creek guy, Joshua Jackson. He's kind of like the protagonist of the first, or he's like the leader of the team. And he makes like really interesting character choices by the end of this one. The way the theme is like interwoven and expressed. Lots of like like moody Emilio Estevez, you know, learning <laughs> that having fun is more important than winning, but which also lets you win ultimately. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like if you find yourself watching it, uh, good for you. I think you'll be entertained. The Flying V, they bring back the Flying V, but it doesn't work. It's such a great crisis. It's, yeah. Are we doing a D2 Mighty Ducks video for LCS? I'm super here <laughs> for it. It sounds like. I love D2. Also, one week from the day this podcast gets released is the Mighty Ducks Game Changers, where Emilio is back in oh, a new Mighty Ducks thing. Because everything is new again. Fascinating. <laughs> that makes me tired now. <laughs> Everything you grew up with exists again, and the actors are all back. The first two Mighty Ducks movies are really good inspirational sports films. I will stand by them. They're up there. I, the cassette tape soundtrack also was extremely important uh-huh. to childhood Michael. That's where yeah. he learned what Queen was. Aww. Boom, there it is, is maybe the best needle drop ever. <laughs> I don't know. There's D2. Go watch it. (laughs) (laughs) This has been our conversation about Edge of Tomorrow. Thank you, as always, to all the patrons for making this show possible. We love you. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you as well to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. As always, our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. Thank you for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.